All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome to episode 228 of the DFO Rundown brought to you by Botano. 19 plus, please play responsibly. The game starts now with Botano.ca. I'm Jason Greger alongside uh, Frank Saravalli in uh, in Philadelphia. Frank, the NHL uh Season officially over, I guess, now that uh, Vegas had their parade, a uh, Saturday parade, a uh, fitting day, uh, get more people out, uh, more people buckled. Um, at night, not, too. Yeah, yeah, at night. and You, you can't have everyone hot. melt in Vegas. Yeah, it was It was obviously pretty hot. There's a lot. It's probably the most shirtless parade uh, I've seen. So, although, to be honest, I didn't watch it. I just saw some of the, uh, the highlights and um, people obviously having a good uh, chuckle at uh, uh, Wild Bill Carlson. Yeah, uh, tarp off as well. Uh, I mean, far be it from me to make this joke, but come come uh, see a bunch of professional hockey players tarps off to see the most average-looking upper bodies you've ever seen on a pro athlete. Jeez, <laughs> oh, listen to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, lean and uh, lean and trim. Yeah, not a little extra bulk. You don't need it. Very true, right? I got a little extra. I can pass along if anyone needs it. <laughs> um, I guess the big news, though, now that the the off season is here, Frank, and the you know if you're a transaction fan, the next two weeks and a bit are arguably that you know going to be the most transaction we see. There's offer sheets being made. Some guys are not going to get offer sheets. You're obviously going to have the draft. You're going to have trades at the draft, and then we have a free agency beginning 
on uh, July 1st. The uh, buyout period is underway. Uh, Oliver Ekman Larson bought out of the final four years of his deal. It, uh, it's a lot of money that Vancouver saves, uh, just over 10 mil, but they still have to pay out the other uh, 19 mil. There's a huge cap savings in year one. He goes basically 8 million bucks in, in cap savings in the, uh, uh, well, just, just under, just like seven, seven thirty-five or whatever it is, but it's a ton of money. Now years three and four, there's a dead cap hit of 4.7. And th- that's the only risk here I see for Vancouver is because they expect to be better than, and that, and I know the cap's going up, Frank, but you're still got 4.7 of dead cap space. I, I think that makes it really difficult to think you're going to win when you have that much dead cap space. Like teams that are well, championship Well, I mean, teams, come on. That's not don't. true. Well, who has dead cap space that wins? Well, the Minnesota Wild are a 100-plus point team, and they've got three times as much dead cap no, space. No, no, I'm not saying make the playoffs. I'm saying win. Okay, but here's the thing. Between now and 2025 – the salary cap should be close to the mid nineties. Sure. So if the wild are doing it with three X as much cap hit, and I know you're saying win, like there's no reason that team, I'm not saying they're perfectly built, but had they gone on a run, no one would have been like, Oh, that team was unworthy. They're 105, 109 point, whatever they were last year. They're doing it with three X as much dead cap space and on a way lower cap. So percentage of cap-wise, this is almost nothing. The Florida Panthers got to the cup final this year with more dead cap space than that. And that's on a way lower cap. So do I see that as um, a a hindrance, a a, something that stops you in your tracks? No, I don't. Because not stop you in your tracks. They can make the playoffs. I don't doubt that. I get why they made the move, like especially this year. I guess I don't. I mean, I I know that it's a previous regime, but like I don't really understand the deal. Unless you think that this is addition by subtraction and he's a pain in the ass to deal with and you felt like you're making your team better by removing this personality from your your dressing room, which could be the case. Um, I, I guess I... I know that it was a previous regime that made the trade, but what it does for me is highlights how poorly they Vancouver has managed their cap over the last number of years. I mean, they were essentially backed into this position by a series of moves that yes, part of the previous regime made. had they just gotten through that one last year, instead of trading a whole pile of contracts to Arizona as a dumping ground in exchange for taking on their issue in, in Ekman Larson and, and now obviously Garland in the same trade who they're still trying to move, but just waiting out the last year of Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel, not only did they not have to give up so much, they just, they would have been cap out of cap jail already. And now to, to this point, instead of alleviating the issue that they had, they went out at the deadline and added more salary. And they basically backed themselves into this corner of, of having to make a drastic move, either buy out an Oliver Ekman Larson or be in a spot where you have to attach an asset or a sweetener to move someone like Connor Garland and clear up a similar you know, amount of space. Oh, hey. It's on uh, both regimes. Like as much as you want to say that the the Ekman Larson trade is is on the Benning regime. I mean, it is, 
But now the choice to buying out him out and having no other real option that was palatable, that's what really hurts. I look at Ekman Larson and the like he man, he fell off a cliff. If you look at his numbers in Arizona, like and what they've done in Vancouver, it's really it's not even close. And it's kind of unexpected to see a guy he's not that old where where he fell off. Now, who knows? Maybe he recovers. And I'm fascinated to see, Frank, what he will be signed for as a free agent. I'm very curious. And like on it, if you think he goes to a competitive team, which he's really never been on in his career. You, I wonder how a, where a competitive team views him. Well, that's the other part of this that no one's really talking about is, is not only was the cap hit onerous, but the Canucks are also basically saying, we don't think we can win with this guy. Because if he's anywhere close to the $7 million defenseman that he was signed for, at least on this current contract and cap hit to the Canucks, notwithstanding the Coyotes portion, like seven million bucks as a defenseman, it's it's a lot, but it's also like sort of right in the mid tier now in the NHL, and is only going to get better. So they're basically making the declaration, in addition to the cap it being unpalatable, that he's not very good. Well, exactly. So, like, I, I, like, I he, don't see a, him. Is he? Is he? Does he immediately jump into the um, John Klingberg tier? Well, Klingberg got one year at seven mil, so I'd be stunned. He's if he not going to get that. I, I'm thinking Klingberg now, yeah. as Klingberg is hitting free agency. It, it, are him and Klingberg? How similar are they? Well, I think Klingberg's a better skater. Um, Ooh, I disagree. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think he's. I think he's more mobile. De- definitely a better puck mover. Better offensively. Ekman Larson's probably a better defender. Um, like I view Ekman Larson is, does he get a contract similar to what Ryan Suter got in Minnesota? Well, he's possibly, but he's also like five or six years, six years younger than Suter when he signed the deal. So maybe if I were him, like I, I'd want to go to a really good team and play even on a one-year deal. Like you're you're getting paid by the Vancouver Canucks. You're double dipping. The money isn't an issue or concern. And I meant Dallas, be. obviously not Minnesota. He left uh, Minnesota, went to Dallas, of course. So Right. But he's getting in real cash dollars next year two and a half million bucks or close to it. Oh, yeah. He doesn't need – I'll be curious to see like – like Oliver Ackman Larson, Frank, remember when he was a year away from being a free agent and he opted to re-sign for the big money in Arizona? And and he was highly sought after at the time and he stayed in a place where he knew he had no chance. Now you can, can you can lie to yourself and say, oh no, no, we're gonna be they weren't competitive. So I was all, once he signed that deal, I was always like, Hey, good for him, but was it more about comfort than being competitive? And so that would be my question is where does how does he view himself now? Um, maybe now he's got the money, so now he just wants to be on a competitive team. Because I would think at some point you'd want to at least have a realistic shot to compete for the cup. Well, but it's funny that you said that because basically what we're what you're saying is is not accusing him, but he took the money that John Klingberg didn't take the deal in hand, and now look how much better off he is than Klingberg, who was like, you know what, I'm going to wait it out. He wanted to stay in Dallas. And it wasn't there. And then he ended up basically losing the big offer that was on the table and is now searching for 
something to try and recoup small bits and pieces of what was on the team. I think it ended up being $54 million that the stars were offering. Coincidentally enough, Ekman Larson signed for 66 and with the buyout that subtracts nine, uh, uh, almost 10. Still so making call a good it, cake. Yeah. He, he got 55 million out of the 66 and he's, in an unbelievable spot now where yeah, he can recoup saying, that. He can recoup that other 11 mil here in the next four years and be and he can recoup it in the next three, two, three, if he plays his cards, right? Like let's say he takes a short money, prove it deal this year and goes to a contending team and all of a sudden rebounds his career and then signs next summer for a four year deal times 5 million bucks. Let's say that's 20 plus whatever he makes this year, plus the buyout, he's laughing. Oh, yeah. If I'm players Larson, never hurt. I'm, I, yeah. Oh, if I'm Ekman Larson, I'm absolutely thrilled. Get me out of Vancouver, and now I can go prove myself somewhere else. Yeah. And earn so what even you, more. He'd be, what's your free early guess again. on what his AAV is? Uh, one year, $4 million. Hmm. All right. Uh, we have uh, Eric Tolsky will join us, the assistant GM of the Carolina Hurricanes today. And I, I think there's a stat, Frank, that for sure he is probably number one in, and that's patents. So uh, we'll have to ask him about that uh, a little bit later on. But uh, let's bring in uh, Ty Remchuk before we get to uh, Eric. Ty, how you doing? I'm doing great. First off, Jason, how was your uh, Father's Day this weekend? Oh, it's great. My, uh, my nine-year-old, he... Uh, he made us a, like a Dutch baby in the uh, in the oven, so he mixed it all together. Has all by himself. Like my my wife said, "Hey, it's Father's Day. I'm not doing it." And he knows how to make eggs and everything, and so he had never done this, but he mixes it all in and made it was unreal. So he was he was pretty pumped. So now I joke, I'm like, "Hey, becoming a little chef here," because ever since he was six, he's been making his own scrambled eggs. So oh. he mm-hmm. uh, he likes breakfast. He won't make much else, but he'll make his breakfast. And so we had that, and then he got me a checkered and chessboard and. Uh, he had the finals in his uh, ball hockey league, and they lost four three. The other team scored with twenty seven seconds left, so the kids were pretty gutted. So, um, but it was a great day. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Frank, Frankie, that's awesome. Uh, I was going to say, what is a Dutch baby? It's a really good question. That. That's what my wife calls it. I never had one until I got married with with her. It's um, it to me, it's it's almost like it's French toast in a in a pan, and then it rises and you cut it. It's so good. I don't even know what how to properly like explain. a souffle kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit breakfast, you know, it's got like, well, in our household, the healthier ingredients, whole wheat flour, all that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, it's quite tasty. Uh, that's a good question. I don't even know. What, I don't even know what I'd put the never category in. Somebody probably does. That's just what they call it. I never had one as a kid growing up. Yeah. I'd, I'd imagine someone driving in their car is like, the hell do you just say it? <laughs> he Rewinding 15 baby? seconds. What did he yeah. say? Yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah, so it basically just goes in like a cake pan. You you mix the batter, you put it in the cake pan, it goes in the bread, and then it rises. And uh, it rises pretty big um, over top, and then it's good, man. Yeah, it's pretty dense, so it's quite Frank, what did you get up to? Not much. Um, my son ended up being sick on Sunday, maybe a little strep throat, so that wasn't so fun. Kind of spent the afternoon relaxing, watched the U.S. Open Golf and Wyndham Clark and how – emotional that was at the end that was kind of cool that was father's day but he was thinking of his mom and uh saw my dad earlier in the morning he stopped over and yeah it was a pretty quiet day 
Now, how many people were rooting for the Orange Crush coming on Sunday and it just didn't oh. happen for old Ricky Fowler? God, I really want to see him win. But also him choking was the most predictable thing yeah. ever. And yeah. not that he really choked because I know he kind of stayed in the mix, but like it was right off the bat. He had those couple oh, holes where you're like, God, yeah, he dropped Rick. three shots. Yeah. It was, out, it was over, he, sadly. He so. folded like a cheap tent in a soft wind. Yeah. He really yeah. did. And, and you know what? It's He set a U.S. Open record for birdies <laughs> in a in a tournament. And just also at the other end was like a bogey machine. If yeah. all, all he had to do was make some pars, not to say all he had to do, but like you, you look at uh, at Wyndham Clark, he didn't miss a green or a fairway in the entire tournament. Yeah. And even there was that, uh, it was right in the middle of his last round when it looked like he was going to fall apart. That one where he had to shoot out of that like thick fescue and the yeah. ball just like didn't move. I was like, oh man, this is it. He's going to crumble. And he didn't. 72 holes, every green, every fairway. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, let's get into the hockey doc here with fill in the blank. I got four questions for you guys, starting with this one. I want a, I want one firm answer. The best landing spot for Oliver Ekman Larson is blank. Jason. No, it's funny. I was looking at teams and um, there's, there's not a lot of obvious answers, but I think it, teams that could use them are probably teams that, aren't near the top yet, but ones that are thinking they're going to get close. So I was saying Buffalo or Detroit. Mm. Frank. I like Frank's one year deal. One year idea though. I don't know, man. If I was him, I'd be so tempted to go to a team like Tampa. I don't Mm. even care what the money's like. Like I said, you've made plenty sign Mm -hmm. a one year deal. Even if they're like, we can only give you 3 million bucks and go in there and be the guy that replaces Ian Cole. Or whoever it is, Ian Cole made, uh, think three year three million last year. If three million on the dot, be the left shot guy that goes in there and replaces him. They've got a bunch of right shot guys. I know they have left shot too, but like, be go to go to Tampa. Can I, I'll, I'll throw you this one geographically? Stay in a similar spot. What about the Seattle Kraken? They could have a little bit to throw around. They could use a D man. Stay nice and close. Try to stick it to the Canucks next year. Uh, hey, now here, I, what about I'm, Carolina? Oh, that's interesting. My, my one thing with Ekman Larson is, I'm just curious. Does the pilot light burn bright enough, constant enough? That's my question. Yeah. Can we just create a headline from that? Jason Greger says Oliver Ekman Larson <laughs> has no fire. <laughs> I know, it's I never a, said it's a decent question. I never no, said I, I'm not. I don't think you're wrong. I, I mean, I think it's a fair question to ask. And mm-hmm. really, any player that signs an eight-year, sixty-six million-dollar deal in Arizona deserves to have that question asked of them. Yep. It's not about loyalty. Theoretically, you would have gotten that money anywhere. All right. Uh, next one I got for you guys. The Canadian team that's most likely to use a buyout next is blank. Frank, a couple candidates. Just looking at one specific buyout. No. Doing some math on the air. Yeah, I don't. Who would your candidates be? So just looking at our friends at Cap Friendly, they have their popular buyout section. Um, Matt Murray's on that list. Kyler Yamamoto's on that list. Uh, Mike Hoffman, Joel Armia in Montreal. So those are kind of the three teams you'd be looking at. Yeah, I was going to guess the Canadians and say Joel Armia. Uh, So just a quick rundown on those players. 
my sense is the Oilers know already and have in their pocket that they have someone that'll take Yamamoto for free. So that's one. Matt Murray, I believe, is an LTIR candidate. Like, yeah. could go there and end out his contract. And then Mike Hoffman, the Canadians are also similarly looking to move him for nothing. Um, so he'll be another, he'll be an, an addition to my next trade targets board. So Hoffman's buyout isn't prohibitive, but it's also like if you're the Habs and you're probably not going to be a playoff team next year, yeah, well, I it's do. easier to just bite the bullet if you can't move him for nothing and just have the year play out and maybe use him as a trade chip later. So you're saying Montreal, Jay, who's your pick? Well, my pick would probably be no one, but if I have to pick one, I, I think the health of Matt Murray, because, uh, I agree with Frank, uh, Yamamoto's, uh, there's a much more realistic chance he's traded. And, um, I think Matt Murray, like if you bought out Matt Murray this year, you basically save a full $4 million, right? Cause he's a 4.867 cap hit for Toronto and he'd be down to 867. So um, that frees up four mil on a team that doesn't have a boatload of cap space. But if he goes on LTIR, now the difference is if you have guys in LTIR and you stay there all year long, it just, it limits some of your flexibility. You don't get to accrue cap space all year long. So, you know, Toronto will have to talk to their capologist and, you know, what's they're also better- trying to trade him for that exact reason. Yeah, exactly. So, so, Here's the funny thing about the Leafs. I don't even think he's the most interesting buyout. I know who you're going to say, and I'm excited. TJ Brody. Oh, man. I was yeah. He's on my screen right now. I was looking at that bout. I was going to ask you about him. Yeah. So he has a, he, because of the way his contract is structured, he has a $0 buyout for this upcoming season. So it's zero this year and then 2.5 next year, which if the cap isn't increasing by more than a million this year, it's probably in the $7 million range next year. And so if you can get off of TJ Brody and clear 5 million, like right off the books, no dead cap hit for this next season, I think you punt it down the road for a year and do that. My only question is, because Brad Tree Living comes over from Calgary and would also really know TJ Brody's game well, is that something that he's willing to do or is he just going to ride it out for the year again? It's so tempting to just be like, I can get through this year and have no penalty moving forward. But it's also not a make or break year for the Leafs, but it feels like, you know, obviously the pressure is mounting. The problem is then going out and replacing TJ Brody, right? Like, because then. Yeah, it's great to have a $0 cap hit. What are you going to do with that $5 bucks to make your team better? Yeah. You're still, you're still going to need a body on defense. It's not a great free agent market to just go spend $5 million on someone else, right? No, it would have to be on the trade front. Yeah. Interesting. DJ Brody, yeah, that is uh, that is the guy I was looking at. Uh, let's go. A couple more teams I want to ask you guys about. We know Gabriel Landeskog won't be playing this upcoming season for the Colorado Avalanche, which means they have LTIR money they can spend. The best fit on the trade or free agent market for the Avs to use that Landeskog cap space on is blank, Jason. Who should they be targeting? Man, that's a really good question. They'd love a second-line center, and there's like – you know, Kevin Hayes is 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 out there. Um, you know, we know that he's eligible, but that's a pretty big cap hit. Now, if Philly's going to retain some salary, you know, if you get Kevin Hayes at five and a half or five, well, all of a sudden, you know, that's probably a lot better. Um, I don't see a lot of great free agent center signings, honestly, that uh, that I think are good fits. So, 
Um, I probably have to go with Hayes because I think that's maybe the most realistic one. How about they already have the guy on their roster and they should just re-sign him in J.D. Comfer. Comfer? Yeah, it's true. 28 years old, 17 goals, 52 points last year. You know him. He's probably the best second-line center option on the board. And now you have increased cap space due to the Landis Cog LTIR. I yeah. mean, isn't it a ready-made? My only question is, what are they doing? Like, they've known about this Landis Cog thing for a while now. Mm-hmm. What is Chris McFarland cooking up that we don't know about? They could do comfort and go get someone. They'll have close to $20 million once Landis Cog's on LTIR. Well, no, 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 no. That's no. They only have one, two, three, four, five, six forwards and five defensemen signed and two goalies. So that's 13, meaning they need to fill out at least seven roster spots just to get to 20. Seven over 20 million bucks. Let's say you, you spend five and a half on Comfer. That leaves you 14 and a half million bucks to get six guys. That's not, they have no cap space, is the answer. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they, they have contracts they can move out. Like I'm kind of sitting here going, if they go get Hayes, you have Gerard in the deal to make the money work. Right. Yeah. But they could, they could the, get creative. The flyers aren't, they're not, they're yeah. not ready to take on a guy like Gerard. You got to trade Gerard somewhere else mm-hmm. and then use that capital to whatever entice the flyers. Yeah, Or it's a three-way deal, right? Yeah. Your, your answer is comfort. Okay. Yeah, I would say also the Flyers are willing to retain, I think, a pretty significant chunk. They're going to wield their cap space. So I think you could get Hayes in the $4 million range. Man, that'd be that'd be something, especially with two more year, or three years left on that deal to get that guy at that cap hit with a little bit of term. That'd be, uh, that'd be something. Last one I got for you, again, I was perusing cap friendly this weekend, as you do, and I was looking at the teams with the most cap space, right? Anaheim rebuilding, Chicago rebuilding, Arizona's in the bottom five, they're rebuilding. Then there's Detroit, who I look at with $30 million, and I'm like, man, that's a team who really shouldn't be rebuilding anymore. They should be looking to move forward. So the question is, the biggest need for the Red Wings this offseason is blank, Frank. I think they need more scoring, don't they? Probably. They they definitely need more defense. Like, Mo Sider's good, and I think Ben Sherratt was pretty underwhelming. I think Jake Wallman and Ole Mata are, are sort of – on an ideal team and a, in a, you know, a strong playoff team, those guys are both bottom pair guys. The wings are paying them more than that. So they, I I still think they need a, a, they need a number two defenseman and they need more scoring punch. I think they've got the, like their goalies weren't good last year, but I think they've got the goalie part figured out in the future. So maybe not as pressing of a need, but I mean, man, Alex Debrinket, that'll look pretty good. Mm-hmm. Jay, biggest need oh, for the Red Wings. To me, all day long, they need goal scoring. They're like 25th in goals. They were better in goals against than they were in goals for. So I, I'm going to say they need scoring. Um, you know, Debrinket obviously is a guy that, that would help it in that regard. There's, you know what? Like, there's not a ton of free agents, you know, out there. You wonder if. Like, do they have any interest? Like, does Tarasenko have any interest in them or not? But they need somebody who can put the puck in the back of the net. And and, and maybe, you know what, rather than go big game hunting, just get a few guys, a few, you know, 18, 22 goal scorers, something like that would be better off for them. But they, they got to add some offense. 
How how scary is that? They were better in goals against than they were goals for, and they didn't have any goaltender with a save percentage north of eight ninety five. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, that's alarming. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Should be an interesting summer in Detroit with the Iser plan. Uh, that's a wrap on this week's edition of Fill in the Blank. Um, man, I, I think it's also a fascinating summer in Buffalo. You think about those three teams in the Atlantic that have all been on this path for a little while, Ottawa, Buffalo, and Detroit, and that triumvirate of teams could really be the story of this offseason too. Awesome. Now, hey, speaking of offseason, let's get to our big guest today, the uh, assistant GM of the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Our next guest is the assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes. He joined the team in 2014 as a manager of hockey analytics. So next year will mark 10 years at the NHL level with the Canes. He holds degrees from Harvard and Berkeley. And oh, by the way, 19 U.S. patents, not a big deal. The DFO Rundown is pleased to welcome to the podcast, Eric Tolsky. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I uh, hate to start it this way, but I have to correct you. I actually have 26 patents. Our team bio is out of date. <laughs> Did you did you get another seven while you were working in the NHL just on the side or what? No, some of the work that I did back when I was in industry is still making <laughs> it through the system. What a ridiculous, humble brag that is. That's <laughs> outstanding. Thank you for correcting me. And you also need to tell the Canes guys to update uh, uh-huh. their website and your bio. Um, but speaking of your bio, I actually want to start there, Eric. And I'm curious. I, I know... You started out writing at broadstreethockey.com, and that's sort of when I first you know, learned of your work and, and had a chance to meet you at some point. But um, how did you – I never asked you this question. How did you get bit by the hockey bug? Uh, I know you spent time growing up in the Philly area. Your dad was a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. But what, when did you get bit by the hockey bug, and, and how did it stick with you? Yeah, it's a strange path. Um, you know, I've always been a hockey fan, um, 
it was not something that I was sinking lots of time into until uh, somewhere around 2009 or 10. Um, again, through Broad Street Hockey, those guys were starting to pay attention to what people were doing with hockey statistics. And they didn't really have anyone on the staff who was really technical. So they had people who were interested, but you know there was a gap in sort of how they understand it, how they used it. And I found myself with room to play a role filling in that gap and kind of translating from what people said with math into what that means for normal humans and how they could think about hockey stats. And it was really that role as a translator that got me engaged. I just, I like helping out. And I found this role where the community was looking for something that I could help with. Um, And so I started off writing articles that were basically explainers and, you know, what this article means and what it implies for how we could think about some of the players who we follow. And as I did that, there were a lot of places where I found myself saying, yeah, they looked at it this way, but they didn't look at this wrinkle. I'm surprised nobody's done that yet. And I started sort of diving in and doing some of that myself. Um, And, you know, it ended up just being a fun project for me to see what I could figure out and help the community in any way that I could. All right. So given the background that I just mentioned, so walk me back in time frame, 2009, 10. Obviously, that's the year the Flyers went to the Stanley Cup final. But you're writing articles on the side as you're doing what? Like, wh- where do you find the time to write stories? What are you doing in your day job then? Yeah, so I uh, was in, I guess, my fifth year at a global biotech company working on a project to build a platform to sequence single molecules of DNA and came home in the evening and wrote stuff about hockey stats and then left that job and went to a startup that was looking at uh, making solar energy panels with reduced cost. Um, And actually we moved as part of that transition. And so during the move, I found myself apart from my family for about six months. And that was when I really started diving in because I was sort of on my own nights and weekends with time to fill. Um, And then so Eric, go ahead. Go ahead, Frank. I was just going to say, how did you then, obviously your work continues to progress. You gain some recognition for it to then take the next step and say, you know what, I've got this, you know, this job in using all the different skill sets that I have, obviously a a, a good job. Uh, Why did you decide to walk to take a dive in in hockey where um, it's a totally different world? Yeah, it's basically exactly it. I, you know, people started sort of noticing my writing and a friend of mine talked me into trying to get a consulting gig somewhere and I, you know that'd be fun do a little one-off project for a team and I sent out a round of emails to people and got a reply and did a one-off project and then did another round of emails and did another one-off project for someone and one of the times that I sort of sent out a note to everyone the hurricanes replied and expressed interest in um something that basically looked like a part-time job. It was reports before and after games and every so often looking at everyone on their team or everyone around the league and little research projects. And so I put together a proposal that was probably 20 or 25 hours a week of work that I did on the side in addition to my day job. Um, And that was a lot of fun, but left me stretched pretty thin. At the end of the year, I, you know, I was like, I'm going to have to pick one or the other. Um, And the Hurricanes asked if I'd be willing to move out and work full time 
and uh, I anguished about it, um, spent a while sort of debating because I've got all this training and experience in this field and um, talked to a friend of mine about what to do. And he was like, look, there's no chance when you're 65 years old, you're looking back on your life and saying, man, I wish I had taken the job at Apple. There will always be another tech job. So go do this one, see how it goes. You know, the worst that happens is in two years, you find yourself not liking it and you come back and get a chemistry job. Um, and so that's what I did. We moved out in summer of 2015 and I've been on board since then. So Eric, it's obviously you were a grinder when you're working two jobs and you know it's, it's something that piqued your interest to want to continue to do it. When you started out those 25 hours a week and you're doing all the data, were you getting, were they sending you game film? Like, were you matching up the data that you had? Like, were you creating, I'm assuming you were creating your own. You weren't taking like stuff that was public. You were creating your own numbers. And how closely do you have to work with the numbers with video? Yeah. So at that time, the data that was available was fairly primitive. We did do work to make sure that whatever I had could be connected to video. Um, we had some stuff that we were, tracking ourselves um, and some stuff that was basically calculations done with the data that the NHL puts out. So they make a play-by-play with a few hundred events per game, and then you can devise your own ways of using that to infer information about how each player is contributing to the team, how the team is doing, what they do well and poorly. You mentioned the word primitive, and I think that's a really good description. Like anything, it, it evolves over time. If you look back now at 2023 and what you first were were looking at in 2010 and, and how much it's changed. Where do you see what has been the biggest change or growth in in what you used to look at as analytics at the time? Because maybe that's all that was available. And now you're like, wow, that's that doesn't tell us remotely what I thought it did 14 years ago. Yeah. So most of it, I think, has held up reasonably well. I think what's changed is the level of detail you can get to in terms of understanding why and how. So the, the NHL's data set is rich enough um, to let you do a pretty good job of evaluating how a team is doing and who's likely to win, you know, 12 out of their next 20 games and who's likely to win eight out of their next 20. And all of that early analysis was basically boiled down to when this player's on the ice, does the team do better or worse? And you can correct for different things about how they're used and who they're playing against. But it all sort of boils down to how did the team do and not what did this player actually do to make that happen. And so the transition over the last eight years, 10 years, 15 years, has been gradually getting more information that lets us drill down into what did he do to make it happen. And the first step of that was getting data that gave us more information about the player who had the puck and being able to, you know, evaluate decisions people make with the puck. And now with player and puck tracking data from the NHL, we can start to learn more about players away from the puck also and really evaluate the entirety of a player's game. There's a lot of that away from the puck, Eric. Can you translate that to hockey sense in a way? Somebody who knows how to read the play and anticipate that maybe, you know, won't won't show up in a certain data, but those new points of watching where he goes says, hey, this guy really kind of understands what he's supposed to do in certain situations. No, it's exactly right. And, you know, when a coach watches a game, he knows 
you know, this guy was a foot behind his man as he cut to the net and put himself in a bad spot and created the opportunity for that backdoor pass. And when you look at the stats, you don't know how that backdoor pass came about. You don't know which player was behind. And as we get tracking data, you start to be able to say, oh, the reason that guy was open was because this person lost his man. And being able to identify things like that, where a player's supposed to be versus where he is, lets you get at a level of detail about a player's instincts and anticipation and understanding of his role and understanding of the system that you really couldn't even try to do with the primitive data. And I, you know, I think it's really powerful. A coach watching the game can see that, but there's over a thousand games in a year and nobody's watching all of them. Mm -hmm. So where are we now, Eric? Because I think everyone's talked about the idea of the player and puck tracking for a while and without giving away hurricane secrets, my understanding, at least from talking to a number of teams is we're really just beginning to scratch the surface that the data there is so immense. Some were joking. They didn't even have the proper storage capability to, you know, take in all of the data that's coming from these games and let alone to begin to sift through it. So where do we stand right now league wide from that perspective of beginning to digest that information. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. It's it's a it's an enormous volume of data and these are enormously complicated problems to solve. You know, so I could show you a single frame of data that shows where all 12 players are and ask you, do you think that guy's where he's supposed to be? And you could look at it and probably answer. But training a computer to do that so that it can look at every frame throughout a game is a much harder problem. The computer doesn't start with any intuition about where the player is supposed to be. And first of all, you just need a lot of data to be able to teach it to learn where that player should be. And so that takes time just building up the data. And then you also need sophisticated techniques to be able to pull that kind of information out. And we've had the data for a year or two. And so... We're at the stage of building building blocks that will get us to the all-seeing AI someday. Um, but you know, it, if anybody thinks they have it completely solved today, um, oh, maybe they do. I would be surprised. There's a lot to do. It takes time. Yeah, you can't uh, can't rush it and or fake it. I'm curious how you know ten years from now if you're just thinking in you know, the broad general strokes of the game, how far reaching will the impact of AI be in your opinion? Like the people I talk to, um, they're saying, hey, I, I think we could ultimately create a, a scouting setup with guardrails where we can have, you know, the data and the video analyzed by AI. It can spit out based on what we sort of you know, target and what, our, what we'd like to see in terms of our framework of what we like in a player it can spit out information and we'll use scouts to not just see some of the things that AI and video can't catch, but also really to investigate the human side of the player. And then once you take that and kind of work your way through, you know, the system of getting this player in your organization, their development paths that they and milestones that they need to hit, then you can sort of map out, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I know this sounds crazy when I ask it, but this person or this player needs to hit certain criteria or target. And if not, you sort of have a general idea of a, when you could trade the player or move the player B what that player's next contract might look like and so on and so forth. Is that where like 10 years, 15 years from now, is that where we are heading or is that just fantasy talk? Yeah. I mean, I think all, 
I think all that stuff can be done. Whether that's going to be the way decisions get made is harder to say, right? So I, in addition to leading the data group, I also lead our pro scouting group. Um, and that group does a fantastic job of watching players and evaluating exactly those questions. Would this player look better for us than he does for his current team? Is something that really depends on the way he plays and his style and understanding the way we play in our style. And, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 years is a long time. But right now, it's hard for me to see us getting that out of data, you know, in the amount of distance into the future that I can see. I think we, you know, we rely heavily on scouts to answer that kind of question. What I think we can do today with data is basically act as a multiplier for the scouts on the things they see. So you watch a player play five times and you see a few times in those games that he uses speed well to come down on the wing and back the D off and then curl up and take advantage of the space he's created. Did he just do that a couple times in those five games or is that something he does all year long is a question we can go ask of data now that you've identified a pattern with your eyes. And so that sort of multiplier where we turn your handful of viewings into leads that, you know, we can use data to pull up videos so that you can watch a hundred of those plays and see how often he does that and how effective it is and get beyond what you saw in the couple games. I think that's the place where data is really assisting scouting right now, but it still starts with what did you see? How does he play? How does it fit? Erica, a few years ago, uh, before he joined the LA Kings, I had Rob Vollman on my show and we were having a whole week about analytics and breaking it down. And, and he was like you considered one of the original guys who really understood it. And he talked about how at that time he said there was about, depending on the numbers, you know, 35 to 38% of the game with analytics was a lot of luck based, you know, a bad bounce, a broken play that, you know, if all of a sudden a guy's out of position, well, maybe he's out of position because something happened that is unpredictable. How is, has that number changed? And when you analyze stuff, how much does like the bounce of the game, because a, uh, you know, a pass hits a stick somehow and it totally changes the whole play in literally a split second. How do you track that? Yeah. So that's complicated. Uh, the, um, I try to avoid the word luck because the way stat people think about luck is different from the way normal humans do. So think about, you know, a basketball player shooting free throws. It's something there's nothing else involved. There's, you know, in some real sense, there's no luck at all. Either you put it through the hoop or you didn't. And there isn't much else to it. Um, But if I ask you to shoot 10 free throws, you might make seven today. You might make six tomorrow. You might make eight the next day. And the luck involved is whether it's going to be seven out of 10 in the long run or eight out of 10 in the long run. But on any given night, it might be five or six or eight or nine. And whether tonight's a night where you happen to put nine in instead of five is pretty random and not very predictable. And a lot of that kind of thing is what people mean when they say luck. So your shot going perfectly bar down and in, like that's not luck. You had a perfect shot, but it's very unrepeatable and so if you do that six times in a week you had a fantastic week you weren't really lucky you made great plays but at the same time we shouldn't bet on you doing that next week and yeah i think that percentage of sort of random fluctuations is pretty consistent over time Um, but it's not all necessarily fluky bounces sometimes it's just you happen to do things right today that 
might not go the same way for you tomorrow. In your years now tracking it, everybody, because obviously the playoffs are where championships can be won, right? You can set yourself up in the regular season, home ice finishing higher, but ultimately the playoffs are a different beast. And, you know, we see it every year, Eric, and it's also different because you're playing the same team for two weeks, which you never do in the regular season. So how do you take tracking it, what you see in the regular season, how different is it come playoff time? Yeah, it's certainly a little bit different. Um, mostly just the pace of the game picks up a little bit. And there are a lot of plays where on a Tuesday night on your four and six, you know, you go 70% speed. And on the Tuesday night in the playoffs in game five, you go 100%. And that does change a little bit in terms of the amount of time you have to make a decision and the options that you're going to have available to you. Um, and, you know, the, that's those changes are real. I don't think they're quite as big as people imagine them to be. It's still okay. basically hockey, right? And the yeah. better teams are still going to be really good. Um, but that doesn't mean there's no change at all. There's certainly the game does pick up and, you know, players do give that little extra bit. So having to make quicker decisions, that's one of the biggest premises in hockey, you know, quick decisions, because if you can make more correct, quick decisions, your chances of winning are obviously going to increase. So now that you've tracked enough, have you noticed, you know, whether, it, and you don't have to say the players, your team opposing teams, guys who seem to excel more and, and not just goals and assists, but when the game picks up their pace, there's a noticeable difference in their ability to process what's happening. Yeah, I think that's true for sure. And I think that's true when you're thinking about prospects too. You know, there's some people who move up a level and don't miss a beat. And that those are the players who were already ahead of the game at the lower level. The players who are kind of thinking it fast enough at the lower level are going to find themselves a step behind when they move up. And the same thing is true you know, to a smaller degree when you go regular season to playoffs, but it's the same kind of effect where if you have to make those decisions faster, that's easier to do if you were already you know, going faster than most people around you before. So we, I think Jason was trying to ask about the idea of randomness and how that impacts playoffs. I, 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 we had Tom Dundon on, on frankly speaking a couple months ago, and he mentioned that he believes the playoffs is a series of four rounds of seven games of essentially coin flips. Is that, does that come from you? Is that essentially where you, you peg it at this point? Tom's probably more extreme on that than I am. Um, <laughs> but you know, certainly seven game series, there's a lot of room for one game. You don't get a call one game. The other players, you know, third liner scores two goals. And like all of a sudden you're down two games in a best of seven series. There isn't much time for skill to win out. And so it certainly is true. I think Tom puts it a lot more starkly than I would. Um, but you know, his his organizational philosophy is it's really hard to build a team that is so good that you're all but guaranteed the cup. And we see that, you know, regularly. The team that wins the President's Trophy probably is the best odds of winning the cup, but isn't a lock by any means. And so his philosophy is he would rather be one of two or three or four teams that has a very good chance for a long time then try to be the team that has the best chance this year and then pay for it next year. Mm -hmm. That consistency, that sort of 
dependability, reliability factor. You were mentioning the idea of asking your scouts and um, I, obviously at some point your coaching staff and management to compare, hey, would this player look good the way we play, et cetera. How much does it help your team and your situation knowing that Rod Brindamore has been there for a bit and as Tom said on our show, uh, I'd like Rod Brindamore to be the coach of the Hurricanes forever. That sort of mindset is really rather rare. But just in terms of approaching year after year as you're building this, sure, there are new wrinkles and little things that may change over time. But the general gist and the idea of knowing exactly how your coach likes and wants to play and then molding the players that you acquire through that lens, how much does that help you in terms of the consistency of what you're attempting to build, whereas... I'm not sure that there, you know, there are other organizations that do it hand in hand like that, but maybe not so much with that same consistency that you can rely on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it does help a lot. Um, in particular, it's not just that we're consistent under a single coach, but we also, I think, play very differently from most teams in both the offensive zone and the defensive zone our structure, our approach, our philosophy is very different from what most teams do. And so that gives us a lot of opportunities to go after players who we think would look great for us, but maybe the things they're good at don't show well for somebody else. And to stay away from players who, you know, he looks great for that team, but we know he's going to struggle with some of the things we ask players to do. And so it helps us sort of narrow down our focus and really identify the players who we think are going to be a fit for what Rod wants the team to do and know that what, you know, that those demands are very distinct and there's something very clear that we can look for and that we're going to be doing that for years and don't have to worry that we've targeted a certain kind of player and then changed the way we play a year later. Makes sense. And last question for me, Eric, I, I, what I always enjoy talking to people about is, is trying to understand what makes them tick. And obviously we mentioned you've got bit by the hockey bug and, and you've scratched this itch over the last uh, decade working in an NHL front office. What challenges you about hockey? What drives you? Is it the idea of basically solving for a problem that I don't know, can be solved? Is that part of it? There's a few different things. Um, when I'm working with data, that's certainly part of it. You know, I, I just enjoy puzzles and it's kind of a puzzle to figure out how I can answer this question that's in front of us today. Um, I also, you know, coming from an industry background, I have a lot of managerial and leadership experience. And there, I looked around the NHL and saw a lot of people who didn't have that kind of background. And there was a real sort of vacuum in the league of people who have thought through sort of how you lay out exactly what you want someone in your front office to do and how you're going to evaluate that and how you're going to give them feedback and how you're going to make sure they're doing the best they can and getting better every year. And that sort of ability to contribute is very fulfilling for me. I like feeling like there are things I can add to help a team get better. Um, and then the third part of it is I'm just a competitive guy and this is a job where you get graded in wins and losses and you can see how you did and having that sort of reward of 
the things that I did paid off and I can see it right here in these wins that we got, you know, that's, that's a kind of reward that you don't get working at a box factory very often. Uh, Eric, recently uh, you've been interviewed for, for other GM jobs and, and that's kind of the next step in your progression. Um, how, how did you feel the interview process has gone and what do you learn from that? And, and how, how do you improve? Cause I know some people have said like, geez, I wasn't a great interviewer early on and then I got way better. I learned from it. Uh, how has that process been for you? Yeah, I think it's been fantastic. I mean, so I, um, you know, I'm not on the other side of the table. I can't know for sure how they perceived me, but I always have felt like it went well. And I felt like I got strong feedback when I asked for it afterwards. Um, uh, you know, the it's a tough uh, world. There's a lot of really talented candidates. And I think, you know, the, they went, the other teams have gone through really detailed processes and interviewed a lot of people and, ended up with fantastic candidates and, you know, that's, that's fine. I, you know, um, I can't necessarily say I'll be rooting for them because <laughs> there are rivals and I'm a competitive I guy, love it. but I have a lot of respect for the way they did things and I'm sure they're going to do well. Um, and you know, I, you know, the old thing it's, it's an honor to be nominated is certainly a cliche, but it's honestly true. Like I, yeah. it's, I really do appreciate being asked, to have that interview and given the opportunity to talk about how I view things and what I would be interested in. So when you're in that interview process, um, because some, some organizations interview way more people than others. And I don't know if you ever know exactly how many, but is there a little bit of, well, I don't want to give this organization too much information because if I don't get the job, they might take that and use it for their organization. How do you balance that of maybe not tipping all of the knowledge you have in that interview? Or do you have to just go all in? No. So, I mean, look, I'm a Hurricanes employee and the Hurricanes are kind enough to allow me to interview for the job, but I still owe it to them to make sure I'm putting their interests first. And okay. so, you know, I'm pretty careful about not talking about what I think about players or details about what I think their team should do. Um, you know, if we got to the point where it was like, we need to know how you see this or we're not going to hire you, like maybe it's different, but in the early rounds where they're screening 10 people, they're following up with four, like at that stage, it should all just be about how do I approach the job? What's my organizational philosophy? I don't think any of that is, you know, an incredible secret, right? It's if, you know, if people want to know how I think about these things, I can share other people might feel differently. That's okay. It's the, the things that I think are really Carolina hurricanes trade secrets. There isn't really cause to talk about because that's not why they're hiring me. Right. They're, they're not making a hire because, Oh man, this guy really liked this player. He's ahead of everyone. Yeah, this yeah. is an organizational leadership position. They're going to run the organization and you should be looking for somebody who understands how to lay out a philosophy and get people on board with it and get people motivated. And, you know, that sort of path is something that I, I can talk about. I, okay. I want to just awesome. ask a quick follow-up before we have some fun and play rapid fire. The right. idea of going through this interview process elsewhere, obviously the hurricanes gave you an opportunity and you did some small projects for other teams on the side before joining them, but sort of bumping up against the notion of like, look at your background, look at the things you've done, 
there, you know, there's not a lot of guys in NHL front offices that have their names on 26 patents. Um, do you, bumping up against the notion of being a quote hockey guy, like I laugh at that idea. I mean, how much more hockey guy does someone want you to be having left your your job to work in this business and have done it for the last nine or 10 years? Like, have you have you run into that? And, and how would you answer that? No, I mean, I, you know, I, obviously, I share your perspective on that. I've been in working in the NHL for almost a decade now. And if, you know, certainly my chemistry friends would describe me as a hockey guy. Right? So it's, <laughs> um, you know, like I, I've been in the league a long time. I, I've seen a lot of how teams work on the inside. I didn't play the game at a high level. That doesn't mean I'm not deeply immersed in hockey. Um, you know, I, ultimately, people are going to value whatever they want to value. And if it's important to someone that they have certain things that only come from having played at the NHL level, you know, that's that's their decision. That's a perfectly, there are things that that person will see that I won't and will be able to communicate that I can't. I think they're also benefits to my experience and there will be people who value that. And, you know, every, every hiring manager has to make their own decision about what they value. Erica, we always like to end with a rapid fire. The only rule is you have to answer the question. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, we'll start uh, with the fun one. Now I assume that patents don't have emotion. So which of your 26 was your favorite? Um, the most interesting. So, Oh, there's no way to answer this quickly. You want rapid fire and you ask. No, 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 that's okay. Um, so making fluorescent nanoparticles that were being used for this DNA sequencing application, the particles emitting light is what enabled you to read off the sequence of DNA. And when we started, the particles had a physical property that made them blink on and off. And people told us that was going to be fundamentally limiting, that we might never be able to make a product because of that. And we have a family of patents that were about preventing the particles from blinking off, keeping them on full time, that um, when we started, there was reason to think that might be physically impossible and certainly would be hard. And we were able to control it in a way that basically solved the problem for practical purposes. And that was, it's pretty cool to take something that you aren't sure is possible at all and demonstrated at a practical level. I think awesome. my brain just exploded. So um, <laughs> when, when you figure this out, is the euphoria going to be similar? I know you haven't done it yet of winning a Stanley cup. Uh, cup is a bigger single moment than anything that ever happens. You know, a research project definitely has those moments of, Oh my God, I can't believe this, but it's, you know, an exciting day. Winning a cup is an exciting year. So it's, you know, I, I think it's a different level of excitement and that's part of why I'm in the job I'm in. Which person player manager in the Carolina organization would transition best to chemistry? <laughs> Besides me? Yes. Um, well, I can cheat here. I have uh, someone on the data team who has a PhD in neuroscience. And okay. so I have to imagine that Margaret Cuniff could pretty easily make that jump if she needed to. Okay. What about a player that you've talked to? Which player do you say, hey, if this guy committed himself, he might have a chance? To a career in chemistry? Yeah. Like who is this, who's the smartest technical data person maybe of the players you've talked to? 
Uh, I don't know. They're all so smart. Um, I don't want to disparage anyone. I, uh, I have to answer the question. I have to answer the question, huh? Um, I don't know if I have an answer. But, you know, it's, <laughs> there's a big gap between being on an ice rink and being in a chemistry lab. Um, well, maybe pre-chem, as uh, my buddy likes to say. He took a science <laughs> course, so he was pre-med. Uh, I don't know. How strict are your rules on having to answer? Uh, well, to... they're not that strict. You know, <laughs> hey, it's like analytics. Fun. Some days you'll answer it. Some days maybe we won't. But uh, hopefully you'll answer more than you than you don't. That would be a, that would probably be a fair analysis. Um, as it's evolved and changed, and now you have all this tracking data, c- can you rank a one to 10, if it's possible, on what we see a lot of the publicly available data and how different is it to what you get to track now with all of these, uh, the, the new tracking from the NHL and spe- specifically to player, how different is it on a one to 10 scale? Um, in terms of things that are measured by both, I think the differences are probably a four. They're real and meaningful, but not dramatic. But I think where you get to an eight or a 10 is in things that you can only measure with one and not the other. Okay. So what have you found that you can measure more today that you couldn't even four years ago? Yeah. I mean, a lot of things about what a player does individually, whether that's, you know, the speed that he generates off the rush or the, you know, the likelihood that he's going to get to a puck that's loose at the net front or a lot of that kind of thing. Four years ago, we had a very limited window into, and it was all by inference. And now we have a lot more data to measure it directly. You talked earlier about how you can get the data and show, hey, the player's in the right position or the wrong position sometime. Are you at the point, do the players, do you come and sit to them or is that too much information? Or can you say to a player, here's the video, here's the numbers that say, you've been doing this incredibly well, or vice versa. Here's one where you're just a little bit off and here's how we can fix it. No, I generally don't do that. I think it's really important that people have a single voice that gets to manage the message and make sure that the player is hearing the things that they need to hear. So all of my information goes to the coaching staff and then the coaches can decide what they want to share and how they want to share it. And, you know, I, like I could have something that I think a player should see and a coach might agree with me that the player needs to work on that. But if that's not the thing they're talking to him about today, then all I'm doing is distracting from the thing they're trying to work on. And so I think it just creates opportunities for miscommunications if you have multiple voices. Do you like the brass bonanza? Oh, yeah. How could you not? Great answer. And uh, lastly, Eric, if you got to be in charge for one day as a commissioner of the NHL, is there one rule or one change you would want to make for the league? Man, I have a list of a thousand of these. This is not a rapid fire one, but okay, I, well, give us, I love it. Give us some of your ones that you'd want to change. I'll take the opportunity to plug one of Rod's favorites, which is instead of having four officials on the ice, have two officials on the ice and two off the ice. And every penalty gets reviewed and the review takes 30 seconds and you go right to commercial when they do it and it comes out of the TV timeout. So instead of having three timeouts that are each 90 seconds, you might have one that's 30 seconds and one that's 60 seconds because you already got those commercials in during the reviews. So the game doesn't get any longer, but you get a lot more uh, sort of review and reliability on the decisions that impact the game. 
Ooh, I like that. Spicy. Uh, Eric, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, uh, man, I learned a lot. Uh, obviously, uh, Frank's head almost exploded uh, when you were doing the uh, particle explanation. So I liked watching that and uh, continued success. No, thanks for having me. I had a great time. I was Eric Tolsky, the assistant GM. 20. It's got a lot of patents there, Frank. Was it 26, 26. now? Yeah. Jeez. Crazy. I love that he corrected me, too. It was so that was such a burn. It's like, nah. Yeah, I just had a couple more trickle in. To, yeah, well, in as mail, he said, by the way. you don't know when they come all of a sudden, right? So, uh, and, and I'm sure he's not going to send to the PR guy who writes his uh, bio. Oh, uh, hey, by the way, now it's up to 22. And then the three weeks later, oh, now it's up to 24. So He should. <laughs> I would. It's, oh, it's a ridiculous. It's, it's the, the league leader oh. in, a, in a, uh, a category that no one else even has won. Yeah. I, I would imagine. Yeah, that, that is a good question. We should ask, is there anybody in the NHL? Who has a patent? Anyone else got a solo one? I doubt it. In management, so we'll see. I mean, not no one has ever confused hockey front offices with Mensa members. I mean, that's really the truth. Which kind of like or the it brings me back to the one of the last questions I asked him before rapid fire, which was the idea of the hockey guy. And unfortunately, I think that's really held him back in, in terms of getting that opportunity the next opportunity to become a gm somewhere else is people listen to him and you know he's not a traditional quote-unquote hockey guy and i'm doing air quotes as i say it but how much more of a hockey guy do you want than one that literally left his job to pursue this passion and has dove in and done the work for the last 10 years if that's not a hockey guy i don't know what is like he literally left his job to be this guy. Yeah. And you, you got to have a, a real pile of money on the table, a deep seated love and appreciation for the sport to make that jump. No question and in my mind. You, you made the joke earlier in the pot about Ekman Larson and the pilot is the pilot lit. And I don't think there's any question that the pilots lit. Did you like listening to his answers? He's not yelling and screaming and pounding his chest, but him saying being graded on wins and losses is what drives him. Like that's, that's the kind of leader I want. 100%. Frank, have a good week. Should be some interesting news coming out, and we will uh, chat on Thursday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Cervalli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Oh. 
All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.